But I have a hard time in an environment where property transactions are down to about a third of where they were a year ago, like commercial transactions, I should say, and housing starts are down. And now we're getting some negative economic prints to be, you know, overly optimistic right now about silver linings, unfortunately. Welcome to the CRE Exchange Podcast, where we deep dive into the global trends and challenges of CRE professionals across all sectors of the commercial real estate industry. We engage with experts in the space to bring you innovative insights into industry practices, opportunities, and challenges to better inform your decisions. This episode is brought to you by Altus Group, a global leader in asset and fund intelligence for commercial real estate. At Altus, we bring together capabilities across technology, analytics, valuations, tax, and development advisory services. We are guided by bold thinking, integrity, and inclusivity, partnering with CRE professionals to maximize opportunities with exceptional service experience. Find out more at altusgroup.com. Here's your host, Aviva Fink. Welcome, everyone, to another exciting episode of our podcast. I'm Aviva Fink, your host and the Vice President of Global Marketing at Altus Group. Together, we'll be jumping into the June edition of the CRE Monthly Market Update, where we delve into North America's CRE market, uncovering its newest developments and trends. And for this special monthly episode, we're once again joined by Omar al U.S. Director of Research at Altus, and Peter Norman, Chief Economist at Altus, who will enlighten us with some of their expert perspectives. And as we kick things off, a flow that's worked well for us is just starting with top of mind, what got your attention? And Peter, maybe coming to you first, you know, we've wrapped up May, we're now in June, midway through the month. What kind of things have been capturing your attention? Really great to be back, Aviva. Thanks very much. And I must say, you know, one of the things I can't get out of my mind when I think of the last few weeks, I guess, is really the wildfire situation. It might have just kind of erupted, as it were, in the minds of a lot of our listeners last week when we had a few days when it kind of blanketed over the eastern seaboard. But it has been a pretty bad season in Canada for wildfires. It's perhaps, you know, gearing up to be one of the worst for a while. It certainly is something that's starting earlier, might be lasting longer, and is also more widely distributed. (laughs) We're seeing problems, you know, on the West Coast and on the East Coast and in between. So, you know, I mean, as an economist, I'm certainly watching this from the perspective of the disruptions that it's causing, both in the sense of like the government expenditure that's going on currently in order to try and fight these things, but also the disruption that's happening, you know, kind of on the ground. We lost several hundred homes to the fires in the East uh, last week. Some of that followed is coming out. There's insurance and so on and so forth. A lot of the oil production facilities have been disrupted out West. That has an implication on pipeline supply and all sorts of other stuff as well. And then, you know, as a human being, I'm also concerned about breathing all this stuff in. So all that stuff has caught my attention in the last couple of weeks, for sure. Well, Omar and I don't sit in Canada. We're definitely, I guess, feeling the effects. Omar, do you want to spend a minute just kind of describing the impact of the Canadian fires on New York as a specific example? Sure. Yeah. I was not really aware and or wasn't necessarily tracking the fires until the skies darkened and it seemed like the apocalypse or some sort of end of world, you know, view outside of the office. And so definitely was pretty shocking, but I'm glad that the air has cleared a bit and that hopefully it's not something that will last much longer. Hopefully the situation will be able to get underhand. But I would say it's been a pretty exciting month since the last recording. And while there were a number of kind of big items that caught my attention in terms of whether it was economic releases or I would say the drama in Washington for getting the debt ceiling resolution at the final minute, 
a lot of attention has really shifted towards the Fed's most recent rate decision, which took place yesterday. That's the 14th. And ultimately, they met market's expectations by not making any moves or increases. So this is a, effectively a pause. But I do think that they upset a lot of the market when they signaled that there are likely going to be additional rate hikes through the end of the year. Yeah, I think I've seen commentary where they're like, okay, there's a difference between a pause and a stall, right? Pause means that we can maybe expect kind of continuity at current, like of status quo versus stall where it's get ready, it's not over yet. And it seems to be probably more in the latter that we'll be facing. Yeah. Yeah. And Peter, maybe over to you because there's also been some news on interest rate hikes on the Canadian side. So what's happening north of the border? Yeah, it seems like we're not uh, 100% in simpatico with the Fed, which is what we more typically expect. So it seems now we've just come off of our pause rather than going into it. And I think a lot of us were kind of hoping that the pause that uh, the Bank of Canada has had on monetary tightening over the past four or five months or so since the beginning of the year has been kind of harbinger for you know some loosening conditions as we went towards the end of the year. Now, we really seem to have kind of pivoted quite a bit and not just us. I think we had last week, we had a rate increase of 25 points, but that follows rate increases almost everywhere else in recent weeks. So, you know, we've seen 25 point movements from Bank of England, from the ECB, from Norway, from Australia, from New Zealand. Everybody has had rate increases in the last couple of weeks. So it does seem like momentum is building again to bring more tightening Currently, but reinitiate that tightening cycle. And much like the Fed guidance that said that there may be, or at least planted the seeds that there would be one or two more changes either in July or when they come back after the summer break, now expectations are pretty strong that we'll see some additional tightening in Canada as well. And all of this sort of stands, I would say, a little bit in the face of economic data that has generally been positive, but generally been positive from the perspective of it's negative. So it should have been waylaying some of these rate increases. You know, we've seen a kind of a negative employment report lately. We've seen, you know, consumer spending, which I guess is kind of holding up actually, but still is weak in comparison to where it should be and other measures. Housing starts are definitely on a weakening trend and housing construction investment is definitely on a weakening trend across all asset classes. In our sector, you know, commercial transactions down quite a bit, obviously, as a result of these higher rates. So anyway, it's a little bit distressing to see that we might be on the precipice of a tightening cycle. I think the implications on the economy have to be reassessed pretty closely now, maybe closer to talking about a, well, we're still talking about a recession. We're perhaps reigniting that talk, but now maybe even a deeper one as we go towards the end of this year. It's interesting to hear specifically coming out of Canada, because I think in the U.S., we have much more of a mixed bag. And Omar, maybe you can speak a little bit to that, what some of, I guess, metrics that we're tracking tell us and the story that it tells us and maybe why the Fed is talking about continued rate increases. Yeah, I think the enemy number one is, for, at least for the Fed, is inflation still. So the latest print we had shows headline inflation at 4%. So that's ultimately falling and continuing kind of that falling trend. However, if you look at core, core was falling at a much slower, like 5.3% on a year over year basis. Well, I think, you know, if you do focus on the trend and the direction of the trend, that it's great. But it's a bit more stubborn and still well elevated compared to the kind of moving target of 2%. The Fed's the moving range of 2% that the Fed is targeting. 
And I think that on the employment data side, we did have a recent surprise of higher than expected jobless claims. That was around 261,000 for earliest of June, which was higher than expectations, but ultimately that's still like well below kind of the range we'd need to see to have significant concern around recession. I do think that in the last week, and especially with the Fed's most recent meeting, the talk about recession is probably fading a bit or at least getting pushed out further because the strength of the economy is something that seems to be reacting less despite the market's strong reaction to prolonged high rates. Right. This is the most talked about recession that has never actually materialized. You know, I don't know if that is good or bad, but, you know, if we're still talking about that possibility of recession this time next year, I think we're all going to be pretty confused. So I think it makes for just an interesting time because it isn't, let's say, clear lines in terms of where we're headed and, you know, what we should be getting ready for. And I think that the, at least what you have both shared and from what, you know, I've been reading, it's almost just really tracking to that 2% target and, Everything else is maybe even a little bit secondary right now, right? It's just, you know, how we get there. And Omar, what other headlines have you been tracking? I follow the public markets a lot. And so I think it's quite notable that tech sector, if you're looking at public equities, they're in kind of bull market territory. They've crossed the 20% year to date mark. And so I think that that's something that it's a kind of a reversal of, honestly, this is a, it's like it's a technical view. It's not saying too much in terms of perhaps it's just saying that they really kind of like overdid the sell off in the prior year. But ultimately, I do think that that is showing kind of the some optimism and in the market as a whole. You know, I take it with a big grain of salt. And then otherwise, I would say recently attended a industry conference that I thought had a lot of very valuable nuggets. That was Crefsi's annual conference hosted here in New York. And the general kind of like high level sentiment or the main takeaway that I had from it was that the commercial real estate finance industry is not optimistic, but at the same time, I would say they have a sense of constrained concern for the industry as a whole. There was a lot of expectations. Concerned, but not (laughs) pessimism. It is a credit crowd. So I do think they tend to be a bit more pessimistic or at least looking at and managing their downside. But I would go with constrained concern for the industry. Everybody was acknowledging that there are going to be bumps in the road ahead. There was a general consensus that this is not GFC 2.0 or that the system is not prepared or is expected to break. I mean, that to me does sound like upside, right? Like people have been concerned 2022 to present day, lots of uncertainty, and at least there's confidence in the system. There may be a lot of change afoot. There may be a lot of still continued uncertainty in terms of where pricing is and you know where transactions are going and when they're going to kick in. But the system should support continued evaluation and then hopefully the movement of real estate and investments. Is that a fair... Absolutely. That is synopsis. Okay. (laughs) All right. And with that, maybe we can kind of pivot into a topic that I'm sure was featured often at the conference. I'm sure it's featured often at in office water cooler conversations. I know it was featured very significantly in some press that been flagged in Canada. Office. We had the opportunity to do a deep dive into retail last month and Office continues to be the problem child of commercial real estate, the one that we all need to talk about, don't want to talk about, but 
here we are talking about it. And maybe we can spend a little bit of time delving into it a little bit. And Omar, maybe starting with you, what are the challenges? What's happening? Yeah. So at the highest level, really, I think there's been a behavioral shift that brought about by COVID that already affects, at least in the US, an already oversupplied market, right? And so you had this dramatic behavioral shift that shifts the demand function in a market where already significantly oversupplied, did a quick kind of look at how much space there is across some of the largest metros and office markets here in the US. Compared to other global cities, we have close to these like major metros have upwards of 70% all the way up to 100% more office space per capita than other major non-US metros. Wow. Yeah. So almost the fact that, you know, let's say out of Europe, we're hearing reports of, you know, pre-COVID occupancy numbers. It's maybe because of behavioral trends, but it could also just be a supply factor at play. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that the supply factor was already in existence and it wasn't problematic, but we were oversupplied going into the pandemic. But then coming out of the pandemic, we're even more so because there just is less demand. And so that is major underlying fundamental shift that's occurred. But then on top of that, you have really kind of from the financial side, really souring kind of economics just across the board. And so that's raised a lot of questions and concerns for the sector as a whole. And Peter, I know you had the opportunity to do a significant study on office. What were some of your findings? Maybe you could give the audience some background in the report that you worked on. Sure. So, you know, this situation that Omar has set up very well is, of course, a familiar story for most of us and and for most of our listeners, I think. I mean, we are all trying to figure out what's transpired, certainly through the pandemic, to get the office market to this position, but also on this question of what's ahead, like whether the permanence or how these factors are going to continue to play out as we move forward. And I've had the privilege to write a report now that we released a couple of weeks ago for NAOP, which is, I think most of your listeners know, is a major association of office and and other asset classes owners. And that group was very interested about that question. Now, this report focused on one very major financial center, which is the Toronto marketplace. But a lot of the findings can be very applicable, I think, elsewhere. And, you know, it looked at this very, very question. I mean, we're sitting in a position right now in that marketplace with metrics, you know, again, similar to what Omar has said, valuation metrics that are very concerning to a lot of asset owners, but also to a lot of other stakeholders in the industry, including, you know, at least it should be including municipalities and economic development groups and whatever else as we try to retool these downtowns. So, you know, we've got availability rates in the 20% range, which is distressing. We've got the amount of available space is sort of, you know, more than doubled from pre-pandemic times. And a lot of that is subleap space. And that's the fastest growing, continues to be the fastest growing component of it. And that part is kind of distressful as well. And mostly, you know, when we look at the pace with which office has been absorbed, Aviva, you mentioned occupancy rates earlier and I find they can be spun in different sorts of ways or interpreted in different kinds of ways, depending on whether you're talking about within a company or within a building or within a portfolio or whatever. But, you know, overall, when you look at the market, we've come, you know, through a market in the Toronto area, we've come through a marketplace that is used to creating the need for about two to three million square feet per year. It's a pretty nice, healthy office market. That's where we were running for a couple of decades before the pandemic. And we've lost, you know, almost six million square feet 
of usage in the last three years, and it continues to go down. So this report puts a lot of metrics both behind where we're at right now and, of course, where we're going to be going going forward. But mostly it's a policy report. So it mostly talks about some of those policy responses. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And Omar, what are some of the metrics that we're seeing in the U.S., specifically when it comes to either occupancy or transaction volume or valuations and just how this is playing out? Yes. So looking at some of the metrics that Altus has from its tens of thousands of appraisals and valuations that it does a year, we can see some pretty strong trends coming through or that at least help color the narrative that Peter just outlined. So in the US, we're seeing occupancy rates falling across office where they're currently around 80% for CBD, as well as just above 83% for suburban. This is decent compared to the over the last couple of years. It's not too far off. It is significantly down from the early 2000s or just pre-GFC, which the rates were closer to 90%. And so seeing that 10 percentage point decline in occupancy is signaling this trend is in place. And that is something that I think is going to be challenged even more by this post-pandemic and question of return to office. But also concerning is in the next two years, we have close to 17% of that net rentable area rolling, which I think being able to retain tenants is increasingly more expensive, making the asset class as a whole become just more capital intensive and challenging the return profile. And not only are you seeing renewal probabilities in valuations increase. The renewal probability is actually declining, right? As there's more uncertainty whether or not the property is going to be able to retain the tenant or the tenant will stay. You're seeing CBD fall in the 60s. So as opposed to it being mid 70s, even just in the mid teens, right? So in 2015, for example, as well as you've seen allowance for tenant improvements, which is the line item and the costs incurred to turn a place and make improvements for tenants, either during the life of their contract or new tenants coming in. So it's just becoming an overall like more expensive and less certain sector of commercial real estate. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, you're talking about just the, I guess, allowances or the preparation that the office owner is doing for whether it's increased TIs or incentives to maybe it's amenity structure to bring tenants in. But then on the flip side, you have occupants, and this has been in the news quite a bit, where they're budgeting or just even announcing that they're setting aside millions of dollars for penalties to reduce their footprint and they're giving preparing to give back space. So I don't yeah. know if that's going to be a continued trend, but that's definitely something that we're monitoring on the US side. Yeah, you know, I, I think that's that, I think that piece, Aviva, is probably the most critical of this whole piece. And you know, coming off of Omar's 17% rollovers in the next few years or whatever, but throw on top of that additional space shedding that might take place. I mean, some might be through bankruptcies, but a lot of them would be through, you know, putting space on sublease or whatever as well companies and government departments and others, I mean, other office users are shedding space. And I think we're just early on in that process. Maybe the flip side, but maybe to sort of put it into a kind of a positive light is that 
the space that companies who are right-sizing their footprints, the space they're going into tends to be a much higher quality space. Sometimes they're moving into less but higher quality space. You've talked a little bit about TIs and impact on landlords and stuff, but in general, I think tenants are also spending more on, you know, just on their own renovation in order to try to create environments that are attractive to work in, like under new ways of activity-based work. That takes a lot of investment, both by the landlord and by the tenant as well. And you're seeing that take place. So given that we're early on in that cycle, I expect to see a lot more of that right-sizing going on. That's why when we try to take the point in time where we're at now and understanding it and how we've gotten here through the pandemic and the kinds of decisions that some companies have made in order to get us there, going forward, it's not a very rosy picture in terms of the total quantum of office space that we need. When I do some of the modeling, I kind of do it from the perspective of, are we going to land on a fit out where every company on average is kind of fitting out for about eight chairs for every 10 people they have? Or is it going to be like six chairs or desks for every 10 people? Or is it going to be four, right? Depending on how mm-hmm. companies set up, it could be anywhere in that or, kind of spectrum, but all I, of those are pretty have yeah. pretty negative impacts in the long Although run. Although I imagine it could even be 10 chairs in some situations where it's everyone has to be in the office on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. You still need those 10 chairs for those 10 employees, but what does it do for the surrounding area if they're only there Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, and yeah. you've got Monday and Friday? My expectation on that, and I think you're starting to see this already play out. I mean, I think there were a little bit early days in terms of the organizational changes that are taking place, and companies are making these kinds of changes. But my expectation is over more of a longer term that we're going to see companies figuring out how to value engineer that proposition. They may accept that people are working at home, let's say half the time and are working in the office half the time. I mean, I know some companies are at half and half, some are whatever, they're different. But let's say you're a half and half company that they're going to figure out how to value engineer so that that half is kind of spread out a little bit more throughout the day. So they don't have empty offices sometimes. may have less space, but not all the time. And maybe not all of them, but nonetheless, no matter how you slice it, it's going to be a negative effect. (laughs) It may be a larger or lesser, depending on how your assumptions go on those types of things, like whether companies are accepting that there will always be empty offices on Fridays. Oh, well, that's the way the life is, or whether we're going to see that value engineered. But nonetheless, it's not going to be the pace that we had before. One of the things in our study we found, for example, in the markets that we looked at, we went into the pandemic with about 10 years worth of supply in the office pipeline. So this is stuff that's under construction or pre-leasing, you know, and have the go-aheads like where there's projects that we fully expected to be in the pipeline. And that 10 years worth of supply now turns out to be more like about 30, which of course is an unsustainable amount of stuff in a new construction pipeline. So the bottom line for all of this is that there's got to be space out there that is progressively more considered to be functionally obsolete. And that space needs to be brought out of the market one way or the other. Either it's a conversion or it's a redevelopment into another use. And we have got very strong uses in many markets around North America for housing right now. It's better for the office market if we identify and make sure that we have the right kind of policies in place to shepherd these conversion opportunities. Yeah, I think even that may be a topic of its own for us to do a deep dive into is like the conversion or repurposing potential of lesser used space. And so I'll save some questions there for another time. But I do think that, you know, real estate is always interesting because you have kind of this intersection of social behavioral changes or behavioral requirements, demographic shifts. Space, like, like right, three dimensional space. And 
what we're trying to predict is where behaviors are going. And we have changes in population. We're going to have a group of people retiring in, in a greater number and they have a more kind of traditional sense of like workplace dynamics and more traditional requirements in terms of living, working, playing, and how that's set up. Then you have kind of the millennial group, maybe what that means in terms of that expectation. Then you have Gen Z. What does that expectation look like? Does it change as they mature? Does it change with AI? A lot of things that I won't pontificate on because definitely it's just, you know, a random set of opinions, but I think it is just a really interesting time because whether it's the lender, the operator, the employer, it's trying to figure out where will things be in the next five years or 10 years if I'm investing in asset or signing a five to 10 year lease. And that's a really hard thing to make a bet on. And Omar, are we seeing, especially coming from Crefsy, where's the credit? Are they taking a look at these same factors and saying, well, it's okay, we're bullish on office? Or are they saying something maybe a little bit more constrained is I think a, a word you used at the start of this podcast? Yeah, surprisingly, everybody loves Office right now. Office came up on pretty much every panel and it's still the punching bag of the industry. I think there is a lot of justifiable concerns for not only from a collateral perspective, there was a lot of mention to existing Office whether it was coming from the asset manager or like servicer perspective and panels, they seem to be focused quite a lot on office, but also I think office came up a number of times in terms of doubtful that production or new financing and origination for the sector is likely to recover quickly. The default rates, have those caught up with that level of pessimism or confirmed some of that apprehension around office? No, the short answer is not yet. I think that's really kind of the consensus view is that it's not yet. It's coming. I think a lot of the office, especially the large loans, or I know that there have been a number of stories that have recently hit over the last, you know, quarter or so around large institutional owners that are, you know, top notch handing over the keys. This is something that while those do catch a lot of the headlines, I think where you've seen the most data is not necessarily in default rate, but actually more upstream, a little bit more where it's popping up on the loans with special servicing, as well as I've heard increasingly so that, so this is more anecdotal, but the conversations being had and exploring, you know, whether that's extensions or loan modifications, especially for office is something that, at least on the financing side, shed some light on the severity of the issue. And usually see those loan modifications and extensions when, one, it is a form of relief, but it's also a punting it from the current when the current is not clear. I think there are certainly some notable transactions that have happened that indicate that there is very much distress in the market, but I don't think it's fully materialized. One thing I would just flag, and maybe I'll pose it to the group here, is that because I was looking across the valuation data again, and for Office, in terms of return and overall valuation, Office, as of the first quarter of this year, is the highest property type that is driven by the reversion value. So 70% of Office values is coming from that reversion assumption. That is the highest property group. So that's the highest percentage of reversion value across property types. The way I interpret that 
maybe not in the early years, but we will be able to get to this point where you can justify these large exits or much more robust valuations. And so do you think that that is possible? And Peter, maybe this is taking some supply out of the market. Maybe it's a market change. Is that something that either of you have views on? Maybe Peter, we'll start with you, given that you know, you've know you got economists in your title, and then I can add my layperson's perspective. I think when you sort of step back a little ways, I mean, we're in an early days of watching this stuff evolve. In the end, value tends to find its spot or whatever, right? Like, I think that if we've got stock that is either underperforming or moving towards being obsolete, you know, there's going to be a higher and better use for that property. There's going to be a higher and better use for either that space or the property that it's on at some point in time. And somebody's going to figure out a way to realize that and to bring that forward. And that's going to be good for the sector overall. So I do have a fair amount of, we usually like, you know, top this whole podcast off on silver linings or whatever, but I kind of feel like there may be a silver lining down the road in the sense that, you know, markets do tend to kind of sort these things out in the end may not be without pain for some participants along the way, but they do tend to sort these things out. And value does tend to find its way in where it belongs. I think that we'll see some of this stuff get pulled out of the market. And I, you know, whether policy supports it or not, that's probably going to happen in the end. Yeah. And I guess just from, you know, some of the trends that I look at, I agree with Peter. I think that like the reversion is something that we'll see play out because if office is kind of the unused product type of our time, there will be a better use established for it and we'll figure it out and it may look different in different markets. I worry more about ghost towns and in certain markets, there will just be for a period of time, a lot of just empty space and it won't be worth the investment to repurpose that space. And that to me is going to be more alarming or just like more interesting, like studying sociologically, like just people that certain markets that were very hot may cool significantly. We may see an increased flight from those markets elsewhere. I don't know if that means that certain CBDs that have been very attractive continue to burgeon and like really become overpopulated, or if that means that there are new, exciting markets that develop. But I do think that there are certain places that will continue to see repurposing of space and other markets in which things are just going to be left fallow. Yeah, I mean, that's always, that's the, that's always the dark side of any kind of transformation, right? That on average, things might sort themselves out, but there's always going to be pockets that don't one way or the other. I suppose if there was a bright spot or counterfactual on that one, it would only be that, I mean, at least in terms of the way it's evolving right now, is that, you know, if one of the drivers for this is this kind of decision that, you know, is being made about how much activity-based work there is for any given company or user, I think that the way the data are playing out now is that smaller markets are the ones where there's less of that at-home working happening and the markets that have longer commutes, like the bigger, traditionally really strong office markets, the big centers like New York and Toronto and London, et cetera, are the ones that still have the really high work at home rates going on. So it might be that some of those small centers are insulated a little bit just because people have an opportunity of actually living pretty close to where those offices are. I also think, Peter, the point you raised before in terms of policy, that'll also have a major implication because metros in which it's really cost ineffective to build or own, it'll kind of price people out of making those investments. So whether it's cost of construction or it's the taxes and, you know, the taxes on specifically new construction, it's transfer tax. Like there are so many things that could impact willingness to make those investments. You know, that'll also... Probably. And, and don't forget about incentives. Like also, yeah. 
going to be an opportunity for incentives to do. And we've seen incentives already. We've seen some municipalities incentivizing conversions or repurposing space for institutional purposes or whatever that there may be that the public sector may see that there's a need for. So hopefully that there's a combination of all that stuff as we navigate through this thing in the years ahead. Yeah. And maybe before we wrap up on a very bittersweet note, maybe we can go around the horn and just share some silver lining. So interesting month, interesting recap, definitely an interesting deep dive into office. Peter may be coming to you first. Any silver linings that you'd like to highlight from the last 30 days? I cannot tell a lie. I had a very difficult time finding a good silver lining because it does seem like a lot of the data has been pretty negative. I still continue to be, you know, concerned about the tightening cycle. The data prints that are coming out are generally pretty negative. I must say, you know, in Canada, maybe some of the bright spots are manufacturing. I mean, we are seeing a lot of manufacturing production starting to rise, which probably is pretty good. Exports are rising. Auto production is up. Aerospace is up significantly, both on export and elsewhere. So some of those kind of core economic development manufacturing activities are starting to, you know, revive themselves pretty nicely. That might be a silver lining. But I have a hard time in an environment where property transactions are down to about a third of where they were a year ago, like commercial transactions, I should say, and housing starts are down. And now we're getting some negative economic prints to be, you know, overly optimistic right now about silver linings, unfortunately. At least it's spring. So maybe the weather is good out there. It's smoky. It's smoky. Oh, that's right. That's right. (laughs) The smoke hasn't cleared yet. All right, fine. We'll come to you next time. Hopefully some better silver linings. Omar, in the meantime, any happy notes to end off this episode? Yeah, I would just highlight the Crefsi event one more time, just because I do think that even though pessimism was or the constrained concern was certainly there, I think another key takeaway was that the industry broadly and, you know, whether it was competitors, counterparts or peers broadly in unison with the idea that we're going to get through this, even if there is quite a bit of you know, work to be done and some challenges ahead, and it's not going to be a smooth road, but the communication is very much there across parties, across firms, as well as the sense of that we're in this together. So uh, maybe that's too hunky-dory or too fluffy, but I really thought there was a very good collegial atmosphere. Well, it, it's good to know that people associated with commercial real estate haven't lost their appetite for socializing and for partnership. And I guess in the vein of what you shared and similar vein, it's great to be in this together with the both of you. So thank you so much for joining me in conversation. Wonderful to have you both as always. And to our listeners, thanks for tuning in. We look forward to speaking with you soon on our next installment. Thank you. Thanks very much, everybody. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the CRE Exchange podcast powered by Altus Group. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. This episode is brought to you by Altus Group, a global leader in asset and fund intelligence for commercial real estate. At Altus, we bring together capabilities across technology, analytics, valuations, tax, and development advisory services. We are guided by bold thinking, integrity, and inclusivity, partnering with CRE professionals to maximize opportunities with exceptional service experience. Find out more at altusgroup.com.